Reefer Madness, the podcast, would like to acknowledge that we produce our shows on Treaty 2 territory and homeland of the Métis. We pay our respects to the First Nations and Métis ancestors of this land, and we reaffirm our relationships. It's Reefer Madness, the podcast, with Trevor and Kirk. Kirk! We're back. We're back. How are you, Trevor? I'm well, and I haven't gone anywhere, but uh, you're you're back in Manitoba. Uh, for those who have missed it, where have you been? We spent two and a half months out on Vancouver Island visiting friends and relatives. Um, we left in mid-February and we came back in um, last week of April. So we missed the two big storms that uh, went through the community in the end of uh, April there. Yeah, we almost had uh, Colorado low number three, but um, that seemed to have missed it. Interesting, you know, nowhere near as bad as southern Manitoba, but we've even got a little bit of flooding in, in Doff and I was working on the weekend and I rode my bike to work on Saturday morning through the park and Vermilion Park and on my way back the little Vermilion River had spilled over the banks and I couldn't get through the the bike path and by the end of the day the Vermilion Park was full of water so we got we got a little bit of water in town. I walked through there yesterday. Yeah, we're not as bad as the southern part of the province, but so yeah. um, so but speaking uh, of you being on the west coast, uh, you brought back uh, an interview with a gentleman, Ted Smith. Yeah, and the Victoria Cannabis Buyers Club. Why don't you tell us a little bit about Ted? Well, let let let's get him to introduce himself here. I'm uh, Ted Smith. Uh, currently, uh, my only Very real much. title is the. Uh, President and founder of the Victoria Cannabis Buyers Club. Listeners might remember that I had the opportunity to go out to Vancouver Island uh, a few years ago, and we stopped in and we met the Victoria Cannabis Buyers Club, and we did um, we did a two part on them called the Healing Healing Communities. Um, and this is sort of, and that was season three, episode four, back in April 2019, we launched that one. So I went back and visited the Victoria Cannabis Buyers Club, and I got to meet their, their founder, Ted Smith. And uh, Ted Smith has been, has been described as, by TED Talks, he did a TED Talk, he's been described as an advocate for human rights for decades. Ted, <clears throat> Ted Smith is also the author of uh, cannabis, uh, cannabis textbook, The History and Uses of Cannabis Sativa, called Hempology 101, which he gave me a signed autograph copy of. Thank you, Ted. Um, he also, interestingly enough, you know, this story, this story, Trevor, is really about compassion and the lack of compassion and empathy our governments tend to have towards medical cannabis. Um, the Victoria's Cannabis Buyers Club if people remember from our first episode, they're kind of operating outside the law in the sense that they're a compassion club and they're providing... And, and have been for years. Like this is decades. Being outside the law is not new. Decades. 1997, they started this. And they've been to court many times and they've won many times. Um, and uh, they, they even have a strategic plan so, uh, which he gave me, which is quite quite phenomenal, and I want to explain, talk about the strategic plan later. But so they're in a situation where um, where they're being, well, I guess they've, they've they've been arrested or charged is the word by the BC government for six point four million dollars. So so let's just 
see what how the government is exercising compassion to a compassion club. So let's listen to Ted talk a little bit about that. Um, it was really what got me into this work uh, back in, uh, I guess, 95. I uh, attended some uh, meetings of a group in Vancouver called Hempology 101, and it really uh, struck a tone with me to educate people about cannabis. And so I uh, you know, struck it out from there to go to Vic come to Victoria, because that was in Vancouver, and uh, moved here, started a club up at UVic, started writing a textbook, and uh, doing a, a number of other things that uh, in a short time led me to do the Cannabis Buyers Club. And uh, for a long time there, I had the two organizations running concurrently. Uh, but then life happened, and now I'm just focused on the Buyers Club. Okay, so we're back from that, Trevor. And you can. what I'd like to do is I'd like to pull a little bit of Julia. We met Julia um, at, uh, in the first episode, and she talked a little bit about um, the Gestapo, cannabis Gestapo that the BC government had. So I just want to draw her in and we'll listen to her for a second. Okay, back in time to Julia. This is a whole new industry that can, uh, it's going to suck carbon out of the atmosphere. It's going to create a ton of jobs. It's, it's safe. It's, oh, there's so many reasons. And it's unbelievable to see the provincial government not only be so skittish on creating groundbreaking regulations, they are actually turning around and going the other way and being you know, creating these cannabis inspectors, these particular, there, there's a new breed of, of cannabis Gestapo. Really? Oh yeah, I'm not even kidding. Um, they are, they don't require a warrant to enter a dispensary. Uh, they will come in and basically the threats that is, is made is if they find you operating without a recreational license or as a licensed producer with all of, all the, those licenses and whatnot, um, they can literally, they'll, they'll shut you down, they will take all of your inventory and the value of that and usually find you double that amount. Um, you can get up to 14 years in jail. Okay, so she's, so you can see now, the raid happened. All right, the raid happened. So um, this is an organization that's used to being raided, uh, but they've been left alone for quite a while. To the point that, to the point at some place in this discussion, Ted talks about how, how the, the Victoria police uh, basically said to him, "Buddy, we're we're done with you, but we've we turned you on to the tax department." So so they got they got they got um, outed to the tax department, got audited, and that's one of the reasons why they had to do the strategic plan, which is quite phenomenal. So um, maybe maybe let's listen to Ted talk a little bit about about uh, what from there. Okay. Um, yeah, we've recently been fined a total of six point five million dollars um, by the uh, BC Cannabis Secretariat. Um, in, I guess, uh, yeah, in, in response to two raids that we've been through in uh, November 2019 and July 2020. Um, and so uh, our society faces a fine of over 2.3 million and I've uh, got my own $2.3 million fine. And uh, yeah, we've been working with our lawyers to get some court applications in uh, as we prepare to fight this next round. The way that they, they calculated this is they estimate 
how much they season the raids. And then they actually used our own computer to figure out how much we sold in between the raids and added all that up together to come up with about 1.6 million and then uh, doubled that, which gave them the 3.2 million. And, uh, and then again, you know, just kind of doubled down on me. So the whole thing's close to 6.5. What do well, you, so what do you do with that? I mean, you you you've been at this game since 1997. You've been in front of the Supreme Court. How how do you wrestle with this one now? Well, in a way, it's 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 an an interesting uh, sort of academic exercise in that my life isn't threatened here with jail time like I've been threatened with in the past for doing this work, and the risk is in what would happen to our members if they lost access to the medicine that we're providing right now. And so, uh, yeah, it's, it's something that, you know, I don't have that kind of money. I never will. That's not what I'm trying to do with my life. And so it's ironic that they put such a big number in front of someone who's actually kind of gone out of their way in what could be a very lucrative situation you know, not to, to make money, and, and so they, they kind of can't get blood from a stone, although one of our board members does have a house that they may take, so that's that's really... Uh, that's a threat. That, that's threatening to her, to be sure, but uh, uh, it's something that, uh, you know, she stepped up to the plate here, knowing what would happen to patients if they lost access to this medicine, which is something that many of us aren't willing to, to let happen if, if, if we have... Any, anything to say about it and so uh, the, the size of this fine uh, actually in a way works in our favor because the bigger it is the more ridiculous it is and the more attention we'll get for what they're doing because it's so grossly disproportionate to other fines for offenses where companies are found criminally negligent causing death and, right. and environmental destruction that uh, you know, is uh, far more, uh, you know, uh, harmful than providing medicine to sick people at a low cost. Um, and so, you know, it's really so disproportionate uh, that the government, you know, loses credibility with the general public right there and, and even gives us arguments uh, in court that, that they've, you know, gone beyond... Uh, anything reasonable in, in how they're proceeding here. Okay, so so the fine, six million dollars, and what do you think about that? Well, it's phenomenally large, and uh, I, I guess it makes sense legally, but it's sort of surprised, maybe not surprised me, that the, even one of their board members is now on the hook. You like like their uh, their house is at risk. So you know this isn't. Sometimes big numbers like 6.4 million just sort of seem almost fictitious, but this is a, a real number and real risk, and, you know, at least one person might lose their house. Yes, yes, and, and people, I guess, you have to remember that when you are executives of societies, you're ultimately responsible for the behavior of that society. So, sure, Ted Smith has a personal fine of $3.2 million, and the organization has a, has a cost of three point. $2 million. But what I find amazing is how disproportionate that was. I did a quick, a very quick search 
And from April 13th, uh, 2022, Winnipeg, Manitoba, the, uh, I guess it's Calcium Nickel Mining Limited, was ordered to pay $200,000 for radiation spillage and radiating fish, fish that we eat. So they got fined $200,000 in Manitoba for that. Which is, th company which is 30 times less than, than, than uh, Victoria Canada's Bios Club. 30 times. Yeah, yeah. We, we can spill radiation into, into the water system, and, and, and we can spank you with that. Meanwhile, a compassion club is, is, is demanded $6 million. But, in, but getting it closer to home in British Columbia... <clears throat> There's an organization, a trading company in British Columbia that's, um, that's basically harvesting shark fins. I, I bet the sharks, the sharks don't like that much. No, they, they, no, they, they, they tend to sink. But <laughs> 20,196 shark fins were carved off these living, these living beings, and they were fined $75,000. So let's put things in perspective here. Yeah, so that that's that's a hundred times less than than Ted's fine. That's it's, it blows my mind. So Ted explains this situation because I, I I asked him. I said this seems really ridiculous. So he explains it. So we'll we'll listen to Ted explain this. It's uh, a, 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 an interesting situation. Um, we're dealing with uh, bureaucracy here that is unaccountable to the public or politicians. Or, or seemingly their own conscience, um, they, they, they seem to uh, believe that adherence to the laws is all that matters, um, no matter how poorly written those, those laws may be. Um, and so, uh, yeah, it's, it's really, um, yeah, fascinating because the, the man in charge, I assume man because the name's Jamie, so it could be a female. Um, really, but the reason I, I say that is because we can't find out anything about this person. And they're in charge of the cannabis secretariat. There's really? no Facebook profile, there's no LinkedIn profile, there's no history that people have been able to, to find on this individual. You would think that the person in charge of the cannabis secretariat, not just the punishment end, but like the whole deal, that's the one that's, that's been behind this fine that we're, we're having a hearing in front of. That should be the most popular person in British Columbia. Oh, you'd think, eh? You'd think that they would be going around and, you know, uh, cutting the, the ribbons on new facilities that were opening and, new you know, economic uh, bringing it forward yeah. to the public and helping, you know, people understand why things are proceeding like this, you know, uh, having some type of presence aside from being so buried in the bureaucracy that we don't even, haven't even been able to figure out the sex of this person yet. Isn't that interesting? Right? It, so, it goes to show you the ignorance and how the government approaches cannabis, eh? It just... Well, many things. Uh, but yeah, certainly in this file, it's been uh, dismal the way that the BC government in particular has approached it. You know, there was lots of warning uh, leading up to legalization, but the day it was legal here in British Columbia, I don't think they even, there, there was no stores available, yeah. right? And then they had one that the government owned that was open for a little while before, you know, any commercial ones came going. Why do you think and even now, is? like for April 20th, I, I talked to a couple of the legal stores who don't even have 250 bucks to advertise on April 20th. 
because they've been so drained by the government that their credit's just gone. Cannabis was huge in the 70s and, and, and mm-hmm. early part of the 80s. Everyone, you know, was, everyone right. smoked cannabis. Yeah. So, and then... And then it know, always has been. It, like, it, when always. I moved here and started Hempology, it was like the biggest industry in the province. Exactly. And, and yeah, right. and, and buds were winning awards in the 90s, and right. et cetera. BC right? Bud was famous yeah. across, you know. So why... I've asked this question to other people. So is it the government not having the foresight, or is it the people within the government that are still buying the... Why have commercial when I can just buy from my guy down the street I've always bought from? Is that what is that what happened here? Like what happened in British Columbia that nobody was ready for the retail store? Um, when when there were so many stores already. It's 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 hard to to get my head around how the BC government just completely failed to put the resources into developing this. They could have they could have made because this an like economic. everybody's been delayed and delayed. Well, that's because there's just not enough staff. Yeah. Right. So you put the staff into it, and this is like an economic generator. You but think? Like, but yeah. they put this portfolio under the Solicitor General's office and Mike Farnworth, the, the police. Under the charge. This is the number one economic generator already in the province, and it's under the police. It's completely the wrong bureaucracy running it, yeah. completely the wrong mentality. You guys have been operating the above board for a long time, right? Like you pay, I, I understand, like you pay taxes for the building, you pay your rent, uh, you, you're, are you incorporated, is it, is it a corporation? Yeah, since 2012, actually uh, Revenue Canada came after us in 2012 after the first uh, uh, Owen Smith uh, decision at the lower court. Uh, and so uh, at that point, uh, the, the CRA told me the police sent them down here because they weren't gonna bother me anymore so they may as well come get their taxes. And at that point was when we turned it into a non-profit and started paying our employee deductions and all this. And it's a substantial amount each year. Um, but uh, yeah, we're uh, uh, pretty prepared for things like, you know, even the society aside from going after the individual board members, like we can't get a bank account, so it's not like they can come seize our assets. That, they could come in here and seize our computers and stuff like that, but really, it's not. You, get, worth you can't that get much. a bank account. Your society cannot get a bank account. Well, the cannabis buyers club. It's not. <laughs> so we're down to uh, the banking. You want to ask some questions about banking? Yeah, and and before we get to banking, I just want to highlight some one of the things that Ted said is, um, the BC Cannabis Secretariat, and uh, oh yes, and. The and maybe we're reading too much into this, but you know, conspiracy theorists will love the fact that the the head of it, the person named Jamie, who they can't find any record of, no Facebook, no anything. And I, I like what Ted said is, you know, this is the cannabis secretariat in BC. This person should be the most popular person in BC. Should be out ribbon cutting for every new cannabis store open, but. Doesn't seem to, you know, they're having trouble finding this person even existing, and they're sort of the leading the charge against the Victoria Cannabis Buyers Club. It's interesting. Um, Ted Ted Smith has been doing this uh, humanitarian work and 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 teaching people and advocating for the use of cannabis since 1997 is when he sort of popped up on the radar, and in those in those 25 years, 
he's become familiar with a lot of people and he does speak to this that he he's quite he's quite um amazed and humbled by the respect that he gets from people and um so he knows people he's connected he's well connected in victoria but they can't figure out the sex of this person, this, 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 this Jamie person. They don't even know the sex of him. So Jamie signs the letter that has the charges, but they, but, but they have no sex. They have no name, like who this person is. But it seems ridiculous, didn't it? It did. But I, I, I distracted you from banking. So Kirk, uh, oh. uh, what do you think about the fact, like we knew from uh, your previous trip to Colorado that, that, you know, down there nationally banking and cannabis don't go together because nationally in the U.S., cannabis isn't legal. So, you know, they literally have big safes full of money. But I didn't realize it stretched into Canada. I didn't either. And and he doesn't go much into that. Um, we're, we're sitting we're sitting in the box, uh, which is the which was their cannabis consumption lounge, which is now closed. And it is his office now. I don't know if you can pick it up, but early in the conversation, you can almost hear wood snapping. Yeah, it sounded like that's you're his... sitting by a crackling fire. It sounded very nice. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's well, that was his screensaver in the computer. Okay. So. Well, ma- ma- the, so the magic of podcasting, I could picture you guys sitting by a roaring fire. Yeah, yeah, that's what. I, yeah, good. Uh, I found it distracting, but um, but he. Um, we're in the box and uh he starts talking a little bit about you know they've been broken into a couple of times money issue and i was quite well in canada cannabis is legal so you should be able to do some banking well of course they're not a legal dispensary yeah right? i guess they're that's outside right yeah. the law and also i guess there is maybe we have to interview a banking person on this but i guess because some of our bigger banks do business in the states they have to be careful with how they are seen with cannabis money so i think i think primarily i mean i'm not an accountant i don't understand the nuances and i really really wasn't i wasn't there to probe but i think a lot of it probably has to do with that they're they're kind of in the gray area of the law actually they're outside the law hence why they're being (laughs) hence why they're being fined but it is kind of interesting to think that an organization can move that much money uh and and actually in the strategic plan they do have the amount of money that they make um and what their visions are and their budget i mean it's not a small it's it's a pretty big organization uh one million two hundred ninety one thousand dollars profit in june in the june uh in this 2017-18 year so that they're moving product but what's cool about this a little rant about medical cannabis right now is that you know, recreational cannabis is getting all the attention. I've written about this in our blog. Uh, I, I plan to write some more about it. I hope to do some presentations on it. But the medical cannabis industry of Canada is being ignored by the healthcare system, in my opinion, right? Very few, very few acute care centers have policies on cannabis as medicine. Um, and here we've got an agency that is that you can actually go get your medical cannabis from people that understand medical cannabis, who give advice about medical cannabis, give you give you baked goods that went through the Supreme Court, right? Uh, this this club took took uh, edibles to the Supreme Court. This is why we have edibles in Canada is because of Ted Smith and Owen Smith, um, and 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 they're offering compassion to people with chronic and deadly diseases. And they're being fined for being illegal. It's 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 a fascinating story. It is. It is. And uh, so, what do you think? Should we wrap up our little banking segue and get back to Ted? 
Yeah, let's let yeah let's Ted talk a little bit about the banking, and he goes deeper into um, a little bit more about friendships and stuff in the health in in the cannabis industry. Uh, the growers, so the people that give you cannabis are are they ACMR growers, or are they just uh, like how do you, I guess it really doesn't matter how you get your cannabis. I, I think now they they all are. Um, in the past, I actually discouraged people from getting MMARs and stuff for a few reasons. Um, partly because they were going to be breaking the laws anyways. So the, the, the rules were, were so restricted that, you know, people were going to be forced to break them anyway. And uh, as they once tried, I always thought that they would try and, and shut everybody down uh, as they did try to do. And then uh, if they had had their way, they would have gone and, and sent the police in everywhere to make sure that everybody was shut down. And so, uh, and... You know, like, the quality doesn't uh, necessarily uh, at all be, be attached to uh, the license. And I found a lot of people would get licenses to grow that didn't know how to grow. Correct. Um, yeah. <clears throat> I preferred to stick with old school professional growers that weren't protected by some license that were, mm. you know, really uh, into it for the medicine. And... Uh, we have done our best to provide protection to any of them um, in, in, in case of trouble, but for the most part, it's well, hard enough that, to avoid that. Yeah, and partly it is that. like, the biggest risk is dealing with people, yeah. right? So it's like almost all of our growers for years, most of the medicine we get is like exclusively from these ma and pa growers and we're the only ones they deal with. So mm -hmm. it's like they keep it down in their neighborhood and they don't have anybody ratting them out or pissed off because they did a bad deal or mm -hmm. wanted more that they didn't get or something because that's how people get busted. Is, sure. You know, when they have business dealings that go bad. Mm -hmm. uh, so, uh, yeah, we've been uh, fortunate on that end and we've got some really long-term relationships. Uh, our longest uh, one started growing for us in 1998. Amazing. I've got uh, four other growers that have been since 2003. Okay. Um, and a few more recently than that, but like a good core, uh, certainly over half the medicine that we get is from growers that have been with us for almost 20 years. And is all the cannabis analyzed then? Like, do you analyze for um, terps? And, and we, we don't do lab inspections no. too much. It's kind of a headache and expensive. It and, is expensive. You yeah. know, it's like the. Yeah, and, and it doesn't always dictate the quality. So we do our own quality testing, like I'm sure you what, what is that? Um, what is that, human, human just test? the staff, right? Yeah. And the staff, most of them are patients themselves, so that really helps them you okay. know, to know how good it is. Um, but we do do a rigorous uh, visual testing for mold. Okay. I'm pretty skeptical of both how Health Canada deals with it, but just testing for mold in general. Because you can send in a beautiful sample, and yeah, of course it doesn't have mold in it, but that doesn't mean that the, none of the crop does, right. or that one of the bags didn't go bad. Because right. that can happen pretty damn quick, too. So we go through every single half-pound bag that we get and do a, a good inspection. Not every bud, but mm -hmm. we make sure. Because the last thing in the world we want is for one of our patients to get sick and yeah. go to the 
fucking health region, excuse my French, but be like, yeah, I bought this from the club and it's full of mold. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. We're shut down in, in a half an hour after but, that. But I, but, I, <laughs> well, but I trust also that your, your, your cannabis is also probably not traveling the miles that, that recreational cannabis Well, is it's traveling. not, and, and we don't have to test for pesticides and stuff because right. it's grown for us, yeah. right? Like, people know who it's for. They know that if we got one bad reaction and tested and found it in it that they're just fucking screwed. They're done. Excuse my French. Yeah, yeah, that's right, yeah. And now it's to the point where most of our growers realize they've got such a cozy relationship with us. We typically pay above market, but the market right now sucks. And yeah. pretty much every one of our growers, if they stop supplying us, is just going to like shut her down because it's not worth going back to that scene that I mentioned where it's right. just completely full of risk. And yeah. It really is a day-to-day kind of operation. Yeah. Whereas now it's like we've provided security to people for years. That like I've known children to be born and grow up, go to school and leave home since they've started to grow for us. Right. So that's pretty fascinating. That actually. is fascinating. Well, you say 27 years, it's a generation right there. Right? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, I've even got staff here that are younger than the club. So you've got a whole lot of strains up there, right? Cultivars up there. Yeah. Are they... Are they you can identify them as, as sativa indica, and you're sure of that land land race. You're sure of all the races and all that, and or is it just the grower comes in and says X? There is a, a little bit of uncertainty in that, yeah. um, but uh, typically speaking, the, the growers and people are right into their genetics these days. Yeah. And, um, you know, I I haven't questioned whether the the genetics were told are the right ones. Uh, it is quite different than the, you know twenty years ago, yeah. and half, three quarters of what came in, people didn't even know the strain or anything. Yeah. Um, or did they? But, I mean, there's uh, an argument now. You know, the, the real, the real issue is indica sativa, and it's again, you know, wonderful to have staff that use it as medicine that can pretty quickly determine that. I'm not so great at it myself, um, but uh, I have more sensitive staff than myself that can you know if we put something up as an indica and they're like wait a minute this is not an indica it's like okay well okay we, we can adjust it somewhat uh, so so, the but, staff, uh, so with the you know staff. that doesn't happen very often usually yeah. it's pretty accurate um and we use seed finder to tell us um okay and that seems to be a pretty accurate website to determine sativa indica ratio and we we didn't we don't get into the strain so much as just general indica sativa. Okay. Um, although sometimes you know our staff do know certain strains are really good for certain conditions, but typically speaking, it's more this is like you know they're relaxing, help you with your muscle pain and different things, or this is you know more of a anti-inflammatory and pain nerve kind of medicine. Um, but we also do have uh, edibles that okay. are indica sativa. Um, we have a range of capsules um, that are made with bud and, and hash, um, and soon we're gonna have uh, indica rosin caps and sativa rosin caps uh, as well. And uh, we're even going to do the same with our suppositories. So we're gonna right. have indica sativa suppositories here okay. pretty soon. Um, and so, uh, but uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's something where, you know, there's so many potential products that we could have on on, on that end of things. It's it's kind of fascinating. Um, you you have you have an advantage over the recreational, 
dispensaries in it that bud tenders are not allowed to give advice, right? By by legislation. Since you are not a recreational dispensary, do your your guys, your, your staff, they're able to give advice or they do give advice. And that's one of our biggest criticisms of the system and how inaccessible it is for patients. Yes. Because, you know, a cancer patient can't walk into a store erect legal one and talk about drug interactions right or you know what will help with you know the nausea or you know any of those questions the staff legally cannot answer um and often they refer people here because they know we can and that that's what we specialize you, in you can also refer um, them to our website because we we uh we did a whole episode on drug interactions okay an cool. entire episode so but yeah, no, that, that's the thing that I find interesting because what, what I like to do is I like to go into dispensaries and introduce the podcast and remind them that you're not allowed to give advice, I can't. As a registered nurse, my partner Trevor's a pharmacist, we can okay. give advice. Yeah. And I, I'm in a situation with the Manitoba Nursing College where I'm becoming a cannabis nurse. So I can't, cool. give, I can't give advice. Which leads me to my next question. Do you have any medical staff on, on, medical staff, on staff? Um, we don't actually have any trained medical staff, no. Okay. Um, that would be a, a dream come true. I've known of other compassion clubs to do that. And, yeah. And really, uh, it would probably be a very practical thing to do. But we haven't gone that route yet. Is that because, um, is that because you haven't reached out? Because there are, medical, there are medical doctors that prescribe cannabis. There's pra- and, and I don't know about mental... Uh, BC, are you, do you have nurse practitioners, independent practitioners here? Yep. Okay, they can prescribe cannabis. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm surprised that you haven't reached out or found, or they haven't reached out and come to you and, and offered their assistance. Um, well, I think doctors are typically pretty wary of the college. Okay. The College of Physicians and Surgeons has not been uh, nice to, to many doctors that have stuck their neck out on this issue. In BC? Um, Across Canada, because yeah. there are because there are docs that do it. I know, yeah. um, and so uh, it's 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 out there. I guess, uh, um, and that's the route that we want to go. Like we want to have a legal store for patients where we can have you know pharmacists and nurse yes. practitioners yes. and stuff on site. Um, I guess. You know, part of it for me is just trying to keep the costs as low as possible. Um, right. And, uh, you know, we rely on medical professionals to, to diagnose people. Um, and so, it, you know, would, you know, but, uh, yeah, it just, you know, it's a good question. Yeah. It's, uh, it's a conundrum, isn't it? I mean, I... As a, as, a, as a nurse, I've been nursing now 40 years, which is, blows my mind, but um, for 40 years I've been a proponent of cannabis. Uh, I've got myself in trouble over it in some situations, but, but you know, 2001, it became medicinal, became, became, it became a, a, a medicine, according, to, well, the, the courts told us it was medicine. The healthcare system ignored it. And then we got legal recreational cannabis. So my issue that I'm having as a nurse is the health system has forgotten about the medical people. What's happening in the health system right now is that for, for what, 17 years we had legal medical cannabis, but no health region had any policies on people using cannabis as medicine in their facilities. Now we have recreational cannabis, 
well, all the health authorities have policies on their staff's use of cannabis, but they still don't have medicinal cannabis policies. Right. So with your experience, how do we push the healthcare system to recognize cannabis as medicine? Well, um, that is a very difficult one. Uh, but we're actually, now we just wrapped up the research on the smoking lounge here. The box, yeah. Um, the box. Uh, we've connected with uh, Professor Mary Lou Gagnon up at UVEC, who's also with the... Uh, with the uh, now I read this. this you're doing Canadian Institute of Health Research. I was reading this and, on... Uh, yes. Yeah, she's also with... Oh, it's not here. Canadian Center for Substance Use. And so, uh, yeah, this study here, it, it has a few purposes. Certainly, um, we want to document the medical... Uh, economic and social benefits that our patients uh, get from having free access to a cannabis lounge. Um, you know, it's something I've seen, you know, certainly for years, how patients uh, benefit from, from having this space. Um, but it also will be very useful in pushing for healthcare facilities to have uh, free uh, spaces um, for consumption in old age homes and long-term care facilities and in hospitals um, because the push will initially in BC's just getting ready to do consulting on recreational consumption lounges but they'll be for profit they'll be you have to you know, pay to go uh, in pay to go home. in and, and the focus will be on you know selling they'll sell all the different bud. products right. and uh, possibly bud on site, but certainly, you know, all the other food and drinks and things like that is going to be part of the experience. Right. You know, whereas patients that are in chronic pain that use this several times throughout the day yeah. that have mobility issues, they, you know, they can't just go downtown to the lounge right. uh, to, to use their medicine. They need something that's close to their beds and yeah. such. Um, we actually work pretty closely with one in town uh, that uh, we're hoping um, we can convince to create a pilot project once this is out and peer-reviewed and published and everything and there's real good documentation. Uh, but yeah, we have many patients that use Nigel House. I don't know if you're familiar no, with that no. facility, but it's a long-term care facility. Okay. That, uh, you know, patients need a lot of help with. And well, even apartment dwellers. I mean, we, we, yeah. we had a short story on a guy in Vancouver, lives in an apartment, medical cannabis user, two years, couldn't, couldn't legally consume his cannabis anywhere. Well, and that's what this study is about. Yeah. Because it's, it, it was actually kind of neat how we could document, you know, what it's been like without the box as opposed to what it was like with. Right. Because before people couldn't even compare. But, uh, yeah, you know, our members have suffered tremendously by, you know, not having a space in the last couple of years. So, Kirk, um, so th this is, as we've said several times before, Victoria Canada's Buyers Club is an illegal operation. So, you know, probably not everybody wants to be a grower for them. Maybe, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe lots of people do. Uh, but I'm... I'm assuming we have they have a special relationship with with their growers. 
Yeah, well, as he says, he, um, he talks about the growers. He's been with them for over 20 years, some of the growers. And basically, uh, these are people that grow specifically for the Cannabis Club. And he obviously keeps them very secret. There's, there's an economy of scale happening here. But it's been happening so long that he's seen a generation of kids grow up. And I found it interesting. You know, one of the, one of the questions I asked them was about analyzing their, their pot and their weed, what they have and what they're giving. And I guess part of me, and I guess as a pharmacist, this must be something that you're probably a little skeptical about, is that they're, they're, trusting, they're trusting their bud tenders, the people that are there for advice, to understand the cannabis. So they don't do any chemistry or any analysis of their cannabis. They're going purely by what the growers are growing and how the cannabis makes the, uh, makes the patient feel. What do you think about that as a pharmacist? Purely as a pharmacist, th that's kind of the antithesis to everything I do. You know, we're all about knowing exactly what's in every dose and exactly how much you're taking and for how long and, you know, the exact c composition of every tablet capsule is really important for everything from, you know, allergies to, you know, if someone comes back and had a bad reaction to X, what was it they had a bad reaction to you know because we if they still have high blood pressure and we have to keep treating their high blood pressure we we don't want to give them x again um so that's kind of the antithesis to what i do now taking off the pharmacist hat and or maybe just putting on the harm reduction hat maybe i guess the argument i'm not saying i'm fully behind it but you know devil's advocate would be most cannabis is most cannabis for most people is so safe that does it maybe really matter if we know exactly what's in there i that's that hurts me a little bit to even say that but i guess that's kind of the the harm the harm reductionist in me is you know maybe maybe it's not the worst thing in the world for us to not know but again my my, my pharmacist brain hurt hurts a little to say that well, this is where I this is where I come into play. It's it's where I wrestle with with cannabis as medicine is is I, I, I my theory is that the healthcare system just is not used to the patient being in charge. We're not used to the patient knowing more about the medication they're taking than the pharmacist or the doctor. Um, so this is all part of conundrum that we have in the healthcare system with cannabis is that we've got a bunch of stoners out there self-medicating with stuff that Canada doesn't even consider a medication. 20 years cannabis has, has been legal, medical cannabis has been legal in Canada, and it still does not have a drug identification number. That just tells me that we're ignoring it. Now, I understand that the flower would be very difficult, but you can extract, you can extract the, the cannabinoids from the, the plant and, and give a DIN to the individual cannabinoids. I think they're doing it with synthetic, right? Yeah. Uh, name some synthetics. Uh, the, so they're doing it. Yeah, so why can't they do it with... Navalone, et cetera. But why can't they do it with, with the extracts of a live plant? Um, and I'm not an expert on this part, but I'll... My two... You don't... DIN's drug identification numbers are not necessarily the end-all and be-all. Well, they kind of are for the prescription end of stuff, but there's also things called NPNs, natural product numbers, which, you know, even the cannabis flower could get, but you're right, it would, I'm sure some smart person could figure out how, but especially when, 
you don't know exactly what's not only from you know Trevor's brand to Kirk's brand you don't know from Trevor Trevor's crop one to Trevor's crop two exactly what's in it exactly how you would uh, control that would be our system's not really set up for that particularly well but it's not to say that couldn't be done what what is vitamin D vitamin D what's it, what number vitamin what number does it I'm have I'm not in the pharmacy but my guess it would be an N, N a natural what well, depends it depends there's over-the-counter stuff that i'm sure has uh, uh an npn a natural product number but there's also some vitamin that i'm sure has a din number and then there's definitely prescription strength vitamin d that definitely has a din so uh vitamin d would be i a little all over the place but again i'm not i'm for those of you yelling at the podcast right now i am not a how you regulate products expert this is just sort of what i've seen in the pharmacy. sure it's sure and i get that but it's just i find again i find it all very interesting you know we've got doctors that are quite prepared to to prescribe drugs off label uh, which essentially means that they're prescribing a drug that has no research at all. But yet we sit here with medical cannabis that does, does have research, and we're learning it through this, this system, this, this Reformed and this podcast. We're learning that research is being done, and we're still ignoring it. I'll get off that pedestal. The other thing I wanted to note, note about that the last uh, comment Ted made was the box that they have. And that the University of uh, Victoria, a doctor, Mary Lou, uh, Mary Lou Gannon is actually doing a study, and I, I googled this study, and this is, has to do with cannabis lounges. Yeah, I was going to say, just right? so, just just to jump in, for those of you who don't know what the box is, Kirk, what's a cannabis lounge, well, and what was the box? Yeah, the box in in the Victoria Cannabis Buyers Club, uh, Johnson Street location, uh, it's basically a cement room uh, that looks like a dispensary, but without all the bells and whistles and Apple Store paraphernalia. And in in um, in the in the box of the box, there is another box, a cement box with a with a sliding door like a patio door that used to be the cannabis lounge where the patients would go in, consume their cannabis, get some get some counseling from some of the people there. Well, that was shut down, I believe, during the raid. I'm not specifically sure why it was shut down, but I think it's part of the raid issue. Their Web page was taken down also. So they so their their clients can't even get weed uh, online anymore. Um, but now what's happening is that the University of Victoria is actually doing some research on cannabis lounges. Because remember, this is another rant um, that I've had, is that uh, people cannot consume cannabis anywhere, right? Uh, in, in, in one of my blogs, you really have to understand where you're at. Uh, Vancouver International Airport, they have signs where you can actually go outside and smoke cannabis uh, or your cigarette, tobacco, tobacco, while waiting for a flight. And then they have these ambulance, ambulance boxes where you can throw your weed in before you get onto your flight if you're going internationally. Um, but in a national park and in a provincial park, because I think you asked me this question uh, last time we did this. A, a, a while ago, yeah. Yeah, um, you cannot consume cannabis in a national park or a BC provincial park, because I just spend a lot of time out there, unless you're in your campsite. Now, if you're in your campsite, a paid campsite, it's considered your domicile. So what happens in the campsite is fine, uh, but you can't walk a trail 
uh, you know, so, and you can't stand downtown Vancouver, though everyone's doing it, or Winnipeg, or even Dauphin for that matter, and consume your weed. So there is nowhere for people to consume medical weed, especially if you live in a condo or an apartment. So they're doing some research on that, and Ted's group is, is involved with that. So I, I think we should circle around. What happened is that we were talking, and um, I know the editing is going to drive Renee nuts because Ted and I just sat and talked. We just talked and about a bunch of stuff, and so what I've done is I've pulled stuff out. After we stopped talking, I turned off the tape recorder. We sat down and just chatted some more and just got friendly. Very nice man. And we circled back, Trevor, on the legal battles because the whole thing started with the legal battle. And... Um, I asked them, uh, what do you think the B.C. government's doing here? Because essentially, if you think about the logic, the only way we create change in Canada on cannabis is it's gone to the court system, right? The Supreme Court told the medical system, well, told the government back in 2001 that cannabis was helping people. So you can have a prescription, quote, unquote, though it's not even what's it called it's not a prescription for cannabis it's called a, it's uh, a medical document a medical document so they force doctors and nurse practitioners uh prescribers to to prescribe this stuff so what happened is that a small group of um cannabis users started educating a smaller group of doctors on how cannabis helped and again we just ignored it so the question i have is that the bc government has known about ted's Ted Smith forever. So they slapped this $6 million fine on him. To what, to what, what's the end goal, right? So Ted gets onto that too and discusses it. And I, I, and I find it fascinating. We'll, like, we'll leave the last word for Ted here, but I think what's happening is maybe, I'd like to think, the government is doing this extravagant fine so that it goes to the court and we can finally finally create some changes for medical cannabis consumers. And, and that would be illustrated in the strategic plan uh, in regards to what these guys want. Um, and so let's, let's, let's give Ted his last word here before we go on to the next stage of this podcast. All right. Well, there's really two main points that uh, I think are both constitutional arguments and just practical arguments. And they both follow up on the Smith decision of 2015. Immediately, Health Canada allowed edible and concentrates with a 10 milligram THC limit, which is the bare minimum for an effect, but for most patients is just completely uh, not enough. Uh, we have patients that need up to a, a thousand milligrams a day if they're using the, the sort of what's called the Rick Simpson protocol for fighting cancer. Mm -hmm. And so we have suppositories of 250 milligrams of THC in them. Um, a government one has 10, so they have to do 25 suppositories <clears throat> with a strength of one three or four times a day, which really is impractical. There's actually a term anal leakage for trying to do stuff like that. It mm -hmm. just, just does not work. Um, and so uh, the, the low dosage, uh, we believe, is a, a strong argument um, that the law is just arbitrary because they really don't have a good reason for it being so low for, for patients in particular. Um, the other argument is access. Um, Health Canada's medical marijuana programs have been 
very difficult to uh, get into. Um, it's a mail order program. Uh, there's no, as we were saying, way for patients to walk into a store, get medical advice, get you know a range of products that are designed for patients specifically. Um, and that's what we want. We want to be able to, to specialize in those types of products, have those kinds of conversations, hire professionals that wouldn't be risking their career to, to work with us. And, you know, I know Shoppers Drug Mart wants it too. Like, we're literally fighting for Shoppers Drug Mart to have yeah. their little cannabis pharmacies Isn't that astounding? End, right? Yeah. yeah. So yeah. it's like, you know, we want something that works for patients across Canada, not just here for us in Victoria. And, uh, you know, part of that, and one of the reasons we've got our, our heels in the ground here is because we also have a cannabis bakery that makes capsules and suppositories and, you know, edibles and stuff. And the current rules wouldn't allow us to own both facilities. And so that's unacceptable. We would have to choose between having a store with a lounge for patients to use, like really like what should be the model in this industry you know, one-stop kind of shopping center for patients, for you know, and uh, and, and they want to completely dismantle that, and, and we would have to choose between continuing to make our products and, and having a, a retail storefront, and so we, we need to have both facilities and, and have them connected so that, you know, as we discuss things with our patients and talk about what they're using and what they might want to try and experiment with, then we could develop new products in our kitchen and sell them at the lowest cost possible with not a lot of middlemen in between, which, uh, you know, would, again, benefit patients, which to us is, you know, the, the only thing that matters. So, so that could actually be one of the ramifications of this lawsuit in the sense that when you win the lawsuit, yeah. it may actually parachute you and give you the, the, the leverage to say, oh, you know what, this yeah. is where we need. So this actually might be a good thing. Oh, and, and we've been saying this, that this gives us the opportunity to argue in court and in public as to why the medical marijuana programs are so dysfunctional and unacceptable. Yeah because the recreational system is struggling along and sure the industry's got its struggles but you know patients are the only reason it's there in the first place exactly. and they should be you know the top priority through this you know and so uh you know it's something like you know we're not going to to just quit or or compromise in what we've been able to do for patients for so long given that we've been one of the main instruments, both legally and uh, you know, on the street, to, to make this happen in the first place. We've set precedent after precedent for decades with the work we've done, mm -hmm. and we're about to do that again. So here we are, Medical Compassionate Club, and, um, and wouldn't it be a wonderful thing if you could walk into a uh, recreational-type store that would have nurses and doctors and, and people there that understand and you can go in there, buy your medical cannabis, get some advice from medical practitioners. I asked Ted if he had a doctor or a nurse on staff. He didn't. And when I explained to him what we're trying to do or what I'm trying to do with nursing, become a cannabis nurse, he found that fascinating. So wouldn't it be wonderful if we were able to have a medical cannabis storefront where experts were there to help people. And I think, I'd like to think, that the result of this lawsuit is just that. Yeah, no, that would be fantastic. And as a 
much smaller but just interesting sidebar. Um, I think we, for future episodes, have to track down uh, just smoking lounges. They seem to be, they seem to be another sort of le legal limbo thing um, that they. I've heard, I, I don't know anything. That's why I think we should interview someone. So I hear they are starting some places in Canada, not in others. Uh, some places you'll have to sort of pay a cover charge to go in, or maybe you have to buy out. It, it's just the whole, Yeah. it's yeah. like you said, a, a big issue we keep running into is, well, where can I smoke my weed? Smoking lounges don't sound like a bad idea, but it'd be interesting to talk to one or two people who have opened one and see What's involved? Well, once again, I think the federal law, uh, the federal legislation allows for it. And again, it's the provinces that are screwing it up. Speaking of the provinces, I am wearing Toba Grown. And yeah. I understand that Toba Grown, Jesse has taken it, finally got his, um, an opportunity to present in court. So they've thrown their arguments down, and now, what, months you have to wait for the judgment? Yeah, no, um, we're looking forward to hopefully a positive result for for Jesse and Tobergrone and Kirk. My worst segue ever. But uh, you also talked to somebody else in BC. Uh, she, uh, because it's gonna be important for the story, she w was sort of involved with Ted uh, and his operation, but also had her own story that had something to do with cannabis and women's studies and undergrad. Uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about her? Well, what happened is that as Ted and I sort of stopped um, uh, talking and, you know, moving on to other things, and uh, this young woman walked in and full of energy, uh, piss and vinegar, as they say, uh, and she started talking to me about her world. And I said, well, stop, stop. Can I record this? Can I, can I, can I make this a cannabis story? She said, sure. So let's jump in just the way she did. I mean, because really, quite frankly, she just, bam. I started as a recreational user as a teenager. And it started with like buying five dollar half grams with like quarters and nickels that we could count, and then using earrings to pierce holes in pop cans, and smoking in fields behind schools, and getting in trouble with my parents, and having World War III with my parents. I got kicked out a lot, but um, in spite of my mom, I achieved honor roll every year of high school and I was a yearbook final editor two years in a row. And so my chronic cannabis consumption had no effect on my ability to exceed in school. And I received an entrance scholarship to the University of Victoria. And so I left the mainland and came to the island. From there, I like kept smoking weed recreationally. Um, I worked at a couple dispensaries that were in that 2017-18, like just before legalization, when they were just like a bunch of young dudes doing for-profit, messy, illegal weed. At that time, Ted was hosting Hempology at UBIC in its final years, and so that's on Wednesdays at 420 in the middle of the quad. And so I was in my first year of university, and it was the mandatory English class every university student has to take. Um, and I was in the class and talking to like my peers and we're all new and young. And I'm like, you guys, there's like a 420. Does anyone want to go at 420, 420? And then what turned into my best friend was this girl named Rachel and her ears pricked up and she's like, 420, you're like, what? And then so her and I went together and then bonded after that forever. And we joined a sorority and did the whole university experience. And then I, kept going to 420s weekly and Ted was like a feature until 
Um, he retired from cannabis activism in like a big way. Um, and in that time, I came into my final year of my gender studies degree, which is like a far out there, like humanities, social sciences degree. And because it's so small of a program, like the seniors usually are like 30 students, right? It's really little. So the gender studies department has uh, the, they, the desire for their undergraduates to leave their degree with a thing. So they have the option of doing like theater or you'll do a blanket that tells a story, whatever. But I did a dissertation and so I had the opportunity to do like fully ethics approved, full scale original research. And so... In the, in the undergrad? Yeah. Oh, okay. And then Ted at this point is like stepping away from the club and activism or whatever. And then I show up like super eager and young. I'm like, Dad, I'm doing this work. Do you want to help? And he helped me. He was stepping away from all this other stuff, but helped me. And what it was was like deciding who to contact. And then Ted functioned as my... Um, connection to industry leaders so that way it wasn't like cold calling people and then he did the soft introduction and so we did like the manager at the compassion club like one at the um, green ceiling you know five different uh, interviewees. What, was, what was the question you're you're asking well, for, your, for your research it started well because like I came from this gender studies perspective which is this feminist lens that says there's gender differentiation and that women move through the world and face obstacles to employment and leadership and blah blah blah. So I was starting with this presumption of like what are the barriers to leadership for women in cannabis. Then I did a lot of interviews with these different women and then a lot of them had different things to say about gender. Some people thought it mattered a lot. Another participant, it didn't matter at all. So then the findings shifted and when I did the analysis, I found patterns and I argued that cannabis, though it is a new industry, is not outside of historical social context and there is issues of like racism, sexism, and classism moving into the legal industry. And then I looked at the ways in which some of my participants were leveraging their privileged identities to move cannabis into the normal legal sector. This is the research you did as an undergrad student. You, you wasted it. How, how are you doing your master's? Well, What's so master's I won a national essay writing competition and they flew me to Regina to speak on the topic. And then I submitted for publication and I'm a peer reviewed published Cool. And what's the name of the book? Uh, Women in Weed, Gender, Race, and Class. Cool. Yeah. Cool. And my full name is Jacqueline Kittle, K-I-T-T-E-L. Thank you. I was going to ask you to introduce yourself. Thanks. Catherine Kittle. And you are now the manager of the Vancouver Island Cannabis Buyers Club. Cool. Cool, man. Thank you for, sh for that, that story. And what I found fascinating is that, you know, I, I like academia a little bit, and I found it fascinating. She had the opportunity to do a complete study in an undergrads course. That, that, uh, that was fascinating. I, I like that she had a good title, because if you ever read papers, their titles are descriptive but boring. We have yeah. women and weed, gen gender, race, and class. You know what? I'd read that. Yeah, yeah. All right, well, I'm Kirk Nyquist. I'm the registered nurse. I'm Trevor Schufeld. I'm the pharmacist. And this is Reef for Madness, the podcast. And uh, 
Ted uh, did have a song, man. Okay. When I asked him, yeah, guess what it was? I'm going to go with Bob Marley. He said, he, he said <laughs> Bob Marley. And so he let, me, he let me choose the song. And I was thinking you got to have Kaya now. But I went with Satisfy My Soul. Because I think right now, the biggest thing that, that, that Ted wants is that I just don't want my boat rocked, man. Excellent. So we'll go into Satisfy My Soul. Like the show? Let us know. We're Reefer Madness on Instagram and Facebook, at Reefer Madness on Twitter, or head over to the website at ReeferMed.ca to find out what we're all about and what's coming up next. Oh, please, don't you rock my boat. Because I don't want my boat to be rocking. Oh, please, don't you rock my boat, no, no, cause I don't want my boat to be rocking, I'm telling you that, oh, 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 I like it, like it, like this, so keep it steady, like this, and you should know.
All right. So we're done. That was good.